Today, we will be in Romans 15, starting in verse 22, and among other things, we're going to cover the passage that has caused some churches, I'm not kidding, to tithe 10% of their budget to the state of Israel. I'm not kidding. In fact, when I was in the school of ministry over at Calvary Costa Mesa, they actually, we actually had a pastor, a Calvary pastor, who came and shared. He was a guest just to share kind of his experience in ministry, and he decided to share with us all that we should be giving 10% of our church budgets to Israel, the state. And I remember looking kind of the looks around the room, as we looked around the room like, that's an interesting concept. <laughs> like, I never thought about that before. Churches tithing to a government, um, not only, it's not even taxes, you're not even part of that government. Like, we're just, and so it was interesting thoughts. But this is the passage where this idea comes from. Now, it's a very small minority of churches that do this. Very, very small. But I think it's worth looking at the passage and understanding why. And I'll be honest with you. There's other topics we'll talk about today. There's, there's several. But there isn't one topic in this passage. And I personally lack the ability to do a verse-by-verse study where there's always one topic. I mean, how do I take this chunk of verses and force it to have one topic? Like, I just there isn't really a way to do this unless... I just do something called eisegesis, where you where you where you you read into the Bible what you want for the sake of something called homiletics. And homiletics that that like that's that's the the uh, the skill of the oratory, the speech of the preacher to kind of like get you going. But sometimes this works. I've seen where teachers get up and they do bad Bible study techniques, and the people walk out and they go, "That was a great message," and they're right. It was a great message. It was just a terrible Bible study. <laughs> so, so I would rather have a less great message and a better Bible study. That's kind of the direction we're coming from. So here we are, Romans 15, 22. Let's begin reading. And again, you can test my teaching by this. After you're done with this study, you look back and you reread the same verses and ask yourself, do I understand this now? Do I have insights into these verses and, and the application of them into my life? So Romans 15, 22, it says, For this reason... I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. And so you see, he's, he's writing to the Romans and he says, Romans, I want to go to Rome. I'm planning on coming to you. Um, and this is, this is neat because this is like insight into the ministry of Paul, the apostle. And to me, any insight into the apostle Paul's ministry is insight into the Christian life. Do you understand? Because, I mean, he's really set as one of the examples of someone who follows, follows Jesus full out. And we learn a lot about his life. So um, any biblical tip or insight on ministry is a good thing, especially given that there's lots of... I remember being given when I first started doing youth ministry. Someone gave me... Um, I won't name the book because I never, I never read it, so I don't know if it was any good. <laughs> but it was a book on here's how to do ministry. And it was like all these tips. And I kind of opened it up and I flipped through some of the chapter headings. And I was like... I, I, I honestly felt like, okay, this is how to organize, how to be like a social organizer. That's what it looked like to me. And I just wasn't interested. And I thought, I don't want to be a social organizer, Lord. I don't think that you've called me to do that. Not that no one's called to do that. Obviously, someone has to organize society, I guess. But I didn't think that was my calling. And what I'm really interested in is tips from the Bible on following Jesus in our daily life and doing ministry and actually getting these examples into our lives. Um, So here's my question that I can do. We can look at Paul the Apostle as an example in one particular area right here. And here's my question. Was every move that Paul made in ministry an obvious leading of the Holy Spirit? Because that matters to me. 
If everything that Paul did, he was led by the Spirit clearly and obviously all the time. Whenever he'd go to this town, the Holy Spirit led him. Go to that town, the Holy Spirit clearly led him. If he was led every time, then I expect the same for me. If he was not led every time, I don't expect the same for me. And I know some believers who seem to be led by the Spirit every five seconds. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, it's always God. It's always God. And I look at my life and I go, there are times when I feel like the Lord has really truly led and guided me in a particular decision or a particular moment. But I look back and I see those few times as forks in the road. But a lot of the time, dare I say most of the time, I am not getting any clear leading from the Holy Spirit. I'm just making decisions based upon biblical principles and based upon godly priorities. And I just make a choice. And I trust the Lord is with me in that. So what was it like for Paul? Well, it seems to me that Paul is describing how he made decisions in verses 22 through 24 when he's like, hey, you know, I was, I was hindered before and now I'm, I'm coming to you now because now it's working out and I want to go to Spain and you're on the way there. It's just like very practical and pragmatic. He's making these big ministry decisions based upon kind of just the way things are. Does that make sense? That maybe you can do some of this as well. Um, Things happen and Paul responds. Paul goes to big cities. Like, that's just his ministry choices, as you see in the book of Acts. He just goes to big cities. Why would he go to big cities? He's like, well, there's lots of people there that don't know Jesus. <laughs> like, that would be it. I mean, that was the reason why. Um, th- now, there's other times where Paul gets a clear message where, like, he has a dream and he sees this guy in Macedonia saying, come and help us. And so Paul travels to Macedonia based on a vision from the Lord. Other times, it seems like he just makes a decision based on what happens, right? He's preaching to the Jews and they reject the gospel and they attack him. And he's like, fine, we'll go to the Gentiles. <laughs> and so it's just that, that, it's convenient, you know? And he goes, goes ahead and does that. And he's an apostle. I mean, if anybody's supposed to be guided every step of the way, it's Paul, right? This is, this is encouraging for me. Is it for you? God, as you, as, you're, as you stay in prayer and as you seek the Lord for leading in your life, so you don't make decisions without prayer, you don't do that. But it, it means that you may just make a choice based upon the situation to honor the Lord, going for it in the name of the Lord, not knowing for sure the perfect will of God in that scenario, but trusting that God can speak to you and reveal it to you if he wants to, and then just going for it. I think that's a fair thing to do. So sometimes Paul just, he just did whatever made the most sense based upon spiritual priorities in his life. So we know this. Paul, he wanted to go to Rome. He had spent years desiring to go to Rome, but he had never yet gone. And I'm glad he didn't go. I can see God's sovereignty in it now. Because guess what? If he had gone to Rome, he wouldn't have written Romans. We wouldn't have this book. So we see God's sovereignty in a way that maybe he didn't see it then, and maybe they didn't see it then, but we see it now. Romans 1.13, he says, "Um, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you. There have been multiple times where Paul was like, I made plans, like, I'm going to go to Rome. And he says, but I was hindered till now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. So he says to them, finally, I get to actually show up and come to Rome. And he mentions something that has hindered him. Verse 22, he talks about that as well in Romans 15. He says, for this reason, I've also been much hindered from coming to you. Uh, What's the reason? Well, all you have to do is really back up just a little bit in Romans 15. And you can see why Paul couldn't make it out to Rome. It says uh, verse in Romans 15, 20, And so I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he has not announced, they shall see. And those 
who have not heard shall understand. So Paul made it his goal to go to unreached people. We talked about this last time. And so he goes, that's why I didn't go to Rome. People were already reaching you. But these people hadn't been reached. So he says in just the previous verses, he goes, so roundabout Illyricum and all these different places, I went and I've preached the gospel. Now I'm going to head to Rome. Because he'd kind of gotten to all the unreached people within his arm's reach. So now he's going to head over to Rome on his way to Spain, probably because there's more unreached people in Spain. <laughs> so that's where he's going to head. And we don't know actually if Paul ever made it to Spain. Some people say he did. Some people say he didn't. I don't know. I haven't like researched that topic in depth, so I really don't have an opinion. But, but yeah, he's actually hindered though by his calling. And I think we can learn from this. In life, when you're making decisions about what you will and won't do, what you will say yes to and what you will say no to, you should think about what your calling is. And you might be like, but I don't know what my calling is. And I'll be like, well, are you a husband? That's part of that calling. <laughs> are, you, are you a wife? That's part of that calling. Are you serving the Lord in ministry? Do you have particular gifts that you see? Do you have, what responsibilities do you find yourself having in life? What gifts do you have? What skills or abilities do you have? And you can look at all these things and kind of go, this seems to be my calling. And maybe God directly reveals things to you lays things upon you in, in a way that says, no, this is really my calling. Like, I really should be doing this. So you can say no to certain things and yes to certain things as you're trying to juggle the responsibilities of life based upon your calling. I, I hope that, that that's something that blesses you. It's a really practical, pragmatic thing, but I think that Paul did it, and I think we can too. So in verse 23, he says, he no longer has place in these parts. What does that mean? I no longer have place in these parts. I think he just meant there's no longer a place where the gospel hasn't gone in this area. So I'm heading on to the new area. It could be that Paul's saying, I'm so persecuted, I have to run. He could be saying, I don't have place because I'm persecuted. But I think the context of the previous verses makes me think it just it's an outreach thing. Um, and Paul did run from persecution, just to point it out to you. He ran from persecution. Jesus generally ran from persecution. There's one time where he didn't run. And then there's one time actually where Paul walks straight into persecution when he heads into Jerusalem. So there's a time to run and a time to walk into it. And I'd say, unless the Lord's giving you some wisdom about walking into it, run. <laughs> that's, that's a good default position, right? The thing is, though, he never compromised. He never bowed to persecution. He might have run from the mob with stones, but he never denied Christ or backed down on the message of the gospel in order to avoid that persecution. Um, so that, that seems like a, a good, good wisdom and balance to me. So Paul's method that I see is I kind of like survey through Acts, look at the way he went places and how he decided things. It seems to be this. I'm going to seek first God's kingdom. I'm going to be open and prayerful about the leading of God's spirit for moments in my life where a fork in the road comes and he's like, go here, do this. But in lieu of that, I'll just make a decision based on seeking first God's kingdom and I'll just trust God is with me. And that's just walking in faith. I like what, he said, what God says to Joshua when Joshua is about to head into the promised land. And he goes, wherever you go, I'll be with you. It's kind of neat because at some point, Joshua might have been like, all right, where next? Um, there or there? And he could remember, the Lord was like, well, wherever you go, I mean, you're, you're stepping into the kingdom I've given you guys. Just go for it and I'll be with you. So there's an element of this where you can just pick. <laughs> you could just step forward in life and do so in the name of the Lord and just trust him with the results. But of course, that is not necessarily the case for everybody. Um, God works all things together for good to those who love him, but not everybody. 
But in my experience, I mean, I, okay, as, as, a, as a Christian and as a pastor, I've talked to people countless times. They find out you're a pastor, and all of a sudden they become very spiritual, and they stop cussing. And, um, and I've talked to people, and, and in their description of their life, they always think that their life has been ordered and directed by God. I've had people who say they don't believe in God. In the same conversation, later on, they go, but I think God's been with me. Well, people are confused, especially about God. We always want to say that God's in my life. God's directing my life. God's leading my life. Um, and there's a truth to this, because on one level, God's sovereignty is going to bring good out of your life, but it won't necessarily be your good unless you love him. Like, he'll use even the wicked, and he'll bring good out of that life, but it won't be for them. They, they won't really be benefiting you know, eternally, long-term, because of it. But those who serve God, those who love him, they will have their lives directed. So I just want to caution us that there's like this real, I feel like there's this real desire and drive in humans that we want to say, my life is, 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 um, has God behind me, has God supporting me, has God leading and directing me. And that's simply not always true. If I seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, then I can say this. But I can't just make whatever decision I want, then look back at my life and just call it divinely directed because it makes me feel good. And that, unfortunately, is something we see sometimes. So every life's incorporated in God's plan, but, but that doesn't mean that every life is directed by him in some positive sense. Okay, now we're going to move on. Like I said, this is going to be a real varied study because there's a bunch of different things he talks about here. So he's going to start talking about money and giving related issues now, now start to come up. So here we are um, at the end of verse 24. He says, For I hope to see you on my journey and be helped on my way there by you if, I, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So Paul's saying, I want to actually have you guys help provide for my journey. You'll help get me to Spain. I'm going to come to you and you'll help provide. Whether that be you know, supplies, food, clothing, transportation, money, whatever it was he needed, they were going to provide that stuff. And Paul, um, he really did rely on others for financial support. And it's difficult, those who are doing ministry like Paul, outreach evangelical type ministry, traveling around preaching the gospel, it's difficult for them to have jobs. It's difficult for them to find jobs. Even nowadays, missionaries, generally speaking, are told they can't work in, in uh, countries they go to. They can't get the permission to work. And so they try to get work visas and they'll try to get jobs, that sort of thing. But they really need other churches to help come alongside and support them. And Paul did this specifically for, for travel expenses. But then that brings to mind Paul's really curious situation with the Corinthians. Are you familiar with it? Paul didn't take money from the Corinthians. Like it was his, it was his policy with them. He would not ask them for money. And he never fully explains why. But he wouldn't ask them for money. Let me read to you. It's 2 Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 9. He says, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? Interesting phrasing, right? Free of charge. He says, was it bad that I did that? Did I commit sin? Because he feels that what he's done is he made them feel entitled. When he continued to minister to them and, and never asked for anything back, because that was a strategic ministry move for them. I guess maybe they were obsessed with money and he didn't want them to think he was about money, so he just, he just did it for free. He like, didn't even ask for food. He didn't ask for shelter. He didn't ask for provision. Um, he would actually work. He stayed with these two tent makers and he made tents. So he had a tent making job. 
Nowadays, pastors tell other pastors, you should have a tent-making job, too. What we really mean is, like, in case the church can't pay you, <laughs> you should have something you can do. Um, so he says, I, but was it wrong? I think he feels he may have, in that decision, the, the initial result was it opened the door for the gospel to go to those people. But the long-term result, because they didn't think he was about money, the long-term result was they felt entitled and selfish and maybe a little narcissistic. And they didn't offer to benefit and bless and help those who ministered to them, maybe as a result. So he says, uh, as he goes on in 2 Corinthians 11.8, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you in a need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. He, he was going to continue this. I'm not going to take any offerings or anything from you guys. He didn't want to take money from them for, for good reason. Um, so he did a mixture of donations from Macedonia as well as the tent-making stuff he did when he was lacking and that wasn't enough. Some money came in from another church and that supplied his needs. Um, so Paul's attitude towards, towards money is interesting because what we tend to do is we've, usually I, we tend to see people on one side or the other. Uh, now, I've always fallen on the Corinthian side. I remember watching those money-grubbing preachers on TBN, and they're not all, it's not that every guy on TBN is like this, right? But I remember a couple, and I'm watching those guys, and as a young believer, turning on, there's a Christian channel, right? I'm all excited. This was back when we, we would go like this to watch TV. <laughs> and, uh, and some of you are like, what are you talking about? I still do. Yes. Well, good for you. But... Um, <laughs> But anyway, it was back when I was like changing channels instead of just going to Netflix. And this TBN guys come up like, there's, there's Christian stuff on TV, so I start watching. They're teaching the Bible, they're preaching. Oh, but what's he saying? Here, I hear, I have another prosperity verse for you. I'm quoting the guy. He would always have prosperity verses. And they were always Old Testament passages taken totally out of context. And then he would tell people, you have to make a faith seed donation. Somebody out there, God's, and he'd squinch his face down. God's telling me. And he'd, he'd crush his face up like, you could hear God better that way. And then God would tell him about how some, somebody's out there, and you don't have the money, but you just need to make a faith donation. You need to call in and pledge $5,000. And I was like, is God really talking to him? I mean, I don't know. Who am I to know? And the more I watched him, the more I despised him. <laughs> Till I remember praying that some of the lights in his set would fall on his head while he was doing his thing. God didn't answer that prayer, but, <laughs> but I did pray it. I felt like he was profaning the name of God and twisting the Bible. And then I realized over time that the people that he was appealing to were also greedy people. And it was the greedy had found the greedy, and they were milking each other. And I, I realized that this was kind of getting what you deserve. We heap the teachers to ourselves that we want. I want money. So I, so I heap up to myself a teacher who wants my money. And I end up losing my money, and I get nothing for it. And he ends up getting judgment for it in the end. Um, and if you want the word, you'll find teachers that give you the word. You want, <clears throat> you want carnality, you'll find teachers that give you that. You want a prosperity gospel, you'll find a teacher to give you that. We kind of end up with the teachers we want and get what we deserve as <laughs> a result, unfortunately. <clears throat> so, so I've kind of grew up on that, and personally... I was like really opposed to the whole money thing. I wouldn't care to give and give to the church and give to a ministry I support, but the idea of having the church support me was something that I had to really, I was slow to be okay with. 
and um, and even still feel a little weird about, um, no matter how many hours a week I might put into doing ministry stuff. But that's because of my own bent. It's not biblical that I have a that I have like an emotional reaction to that. It's probably just because of my bent because I saw abuses at a young age. Um, what was Paul's attitude? Well, <clears throat> let's let's keep reading because he's going to talk more about money. And then we'll answer the question, should we be tithing to Israel? Because I think that's just a really interesting question. Verse 25, he says, But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, for, their, for they are their debtors. That the Macedonians and, and those from Achaia are debtors, or they owe these people in Jerusalem for some reason. Um, for if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I've performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Okay, so let's tackle this topic. Because <clears throat> this video is going to get to somebody who needs it, I know. <laughs> and you may encounter someone who has this issue. Um, this is the passage the pastor used to say we should be giving 10% of the church's income to the state of Israel. And he says, look, the Gentiles, you've partaken of the spiritual things of the Jews, so you should be giving a tithe over to the Jews. Now, there's no mention of a tithe here, is there? Of a 10% number? There isn't, but that was what he came up with. Uh, but here's the question. What really is happening in this passage? First off, the the... the Believers who were in Macedonia and Achaia, they did not give money to the state of Israel. They gave money to poor Christians in Jerusalem. And there's a huge difference between individual poor Christians and the state of, of, a, of a nation. I mean, I could go out and I could offer money and help out somebody in the congregation who can't pay their rent, but don't pretend like I tithed a percentage of the church to the government of America. <laughs> when I do that, that doesn't make sense. So it was to the poor believers. And this passage actually doesn't command us to even do the same. It just says this is what they're doing and here's why. But it doesn't tell us all to do the same thing. The, there's a principle here that spiritual blessings are rightly answered by material ones. And this is where I get a little uncomfortable. <laughs> because it's like I said, my own bent is that this stuff can be easily abused. But the reality is that God says in Scripture, right, do not muzzle the ox as he treads out the grain, that it's not as though we are to make life as hard as we can for those who are serving the Lord in ministry. That's not like the goal in, in life. So the principles in verse 27. He says, if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. That's the general principle. When someone ministers to you spiritually, it's entirely appropriate to minister to them and take care of their material needs. That's a biblical teaching. Now, is it abused? Yes. Did Paul abuse it? No. Did the apostles abuse it? No. Did the early church abuse it? Absolutely not. It's abused by money-grubbing punks who make the rest of us just want to throw up at the idea <laughs> of, of this sort of thing. But there's a biblical principle we don't want to lose. So let me read to you a couple other related verses to help flesh this out. Um, 1 Corinthians 9.11, Paul writes... <clears throat> If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If we've sown spiritual things for you, so we've ministered to you in spiritual ways, is it a great thing really that we reap your material things? Now, this is just talking about provision. 
This is just so that the person can survive and be sustained by their preaching of the gospel. Galatians 6.6 says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. That really is talking about just ministering to the people that are ministering to you. Now, this isn't like a strict law, like, like, oh, that was a good word. And then you like throw a dollar bill at the teacher. Oh, no, that was really good. Five dollar bill. Like, chuck it. <laughs> a little pile of money at the end of the service, depending on how good it was. Let it really minister to you. But there is a principle, an overall principle, that the teachers ought to be taken care of by the people that are ministering to. Now, we do this in schools. We wouldn't ask, like, public school teachers, you should work for free. Like, we would never say this. And they're, and they're ministering in material ways. Whereas in the church, they're ministering in spiritual ways. And so there's a real blessing and benefit. Now, we balance this out with Paul's example in Corinth, where he says, in this community, in this culture, it would hinder them if I were to even open my mouth and say, hey, I'm hungry. So I will, I will never speak of money to these people. I will just minister to them for free. I'll even take donations from other churches in order to sustain myself. I'll get a job and work as much as I can. So there's a, there's a wisdom in that. But this is a biblical truth. Um, but I will say this, <clears throat> and let me, I'll give you a real-life example of how, how you don't apply this. Two, two things I want to say. One is this. Um, I had a guy one time, and I was working at a coffee shop. He walked in. It was a Christian coffee shop that I was working at. And he walks in there. I'd never seen him before, never heard of him. And he says, I'm a minister. I'm full-time. I do full-time ministry. I travel around, and I minister to people. And then he said, can I have some money? And I was, again, I was a pretty young believer at this time. And I just remember thinking, like, I know that verse, right? Like, God minister, you, people minister to you. It's, what big deal is it for me to bless you? And I just, I thought, you might even be some big minister, but I've never heard of you. You've never ministered to me. It doesn't say here that we should all just bless anybody who does ministry. We should just give them money. It says something about providing for the people who've blessed you. This is the idea of each congregation taking care of the people in their area that are doing ministry. That's the idea. So that's the one caveat is someone has to actually minister to you personally for this to apply. The second thing is this. Um, given the advent of, of media, TV, there's a reason why money-grubbing preachers get on TV. Because if you've given them a big enough audience and they prophesy that there's an old lady who only has $20 left in her cookie jar and God wants her to give it to their ministry, there's you know, at least 10 old ladies are going to get that message because you have a big enough audience. So as the audience gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it makes less sense to be giving that same portion to that minister because we're trying to be practical and reasonable here. This is one of the reasons why I personally don't make appeals, uh, haven't made appeals for any money doing online ministry stuff because it's like, well, the local congregation, Hosanna, I do full-time ministry. They take care of my needs. Why would I make an appeal to the thousands and thousands of people online who might all then create this real imbalance where these aren't my needs that are being met. This is just wealth. So, yeah, there's needs for the ministry, but I mean, for me, financially, personally, that just seems kind of weird. And I haven't figured out how to navigate all this. I honestly don't know how I want to honor God in it. But there is a biblical teaching, and Paul took advantage of it, where those who are living on the gospel are making a living through that ministry. And so that's, that's a right and appropriate thing done the right way, and hopefully we can tell the difference when someone's abusing it. 
So, uh, so we don't tithe to the state of Israel. They didn't tithe to the state of Israel. It wasn't a tithe. <clears throat> it wasn't to the state. <laughs> they were specifically helping poor Christians, poor Christians who were in Israel. But why does he say the Jew-Gentile issue there in verse 27? If the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, there, the Gentile, their duty is also to minister to them, the Jew, in material things. So should Gentiles, Gentile Christians be giving money to Jewish Christians? Poor Jewish Christians. No, I, I think that that was in, in that time for that for that time for a specific reason. See, the gospel chronologically, the gospel started in Jerusalem. Jesus rose. The early church started right there. From there, missionaries went out into what places? I don't know. Macedonia, Achaia. They came from Jerusalem. Literally, those churches were planted from Jerusalem into those other communities. So they went back and they said, "There's our mother church." They're poor. They're going on hard times. Let's take a collection and let's help them out. So that's the context here in Romans. Um, so now hopefully it won't be abused. I do think, though, that we can learn something. One of the things from it is this. Um, the need to take care of the poor in the early church is a really prominent and dominant thing. And... Their ministries, taking care of the poor, were not outreach ministries. They were just taking care of the poor. They were not taking care of the poor of the world. They were taking care of the poor in the Lord. Does that make sense? Read, read Acts. Like this, the one thing they tell Paul, he goes to Jerusalem, he meets with them, and they were like, we have the same gospel. They go, just one thing, just remember to take care of the poor. But in the examples of them taking care of the poor, it's always Christians. But often, our poor ministries that we have in the church, they're, they're, they're like focused basically on outreach. And we, we reach out to minister to the poor who are outside of the church, and we sometimes neglect the poor that are in the church. And when I say the poor in the church, I mean like the single mom who can't afford to pay the rent that she's got. Like, how about the church comes alongside her and helps her out? And we don't, I mean, obviously the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So if you've got a guy that's just like, or, or a woman who's just lazy, and they're like just wanting free handouts, you should cut them off. But if they're just poor and they're just struggling and they're in the church, we should prioritize helping that person over helping the world. That we should spend more of our budget on helping the poor in the church than the poor out of the church. That's actually what scripture tells us when it says to do good unto all, especially to the household of saints. Especially. So it's not that we never help the poor in the world. We just don't neglect the poor in the Lord because they're part of our family. You wouldn't feed your neighbor's kids at the expense of feeding your own. And so we help the poor in the church. And this leads me to think this. I'm, a lot of random stuff today. Sorry, that's just the way it is. <clears throat> um, in, in, in the course of being part of, you know, being a conservative, not only a biblical conservative, but even a political conservative, I, um, <clears throat> I've heard people say that the church, it's the church's job to take care of the poor, not the government. Have you guys heard that? I've heard that before, and I've always just thought about it like, huh, like, Something about that feels right and something about that feels wrong. And I'm not really sure how to weigh that out exactly. But the reality is that if the, if the church's job is to take care of all of the poor, then we're not going to take care of any of the poor because there's too many poor. But if our job is to prioritize the poor in the church, then that makes more sense to me. And I, I think that it's not biblical to say that the church's job is to take care of the poor. What do you do when you're in a country where you have 6% Christians 94% non-Christians, and you think it's your job to take care of all the poor in your entire country. 
what do you do? Chances are you are the poor. <laughs> if you're in a 6% minority, chances are you are part of that poor. Um, so I think that that's kind of a little bit wrong <clears throat> and, uh, and doesn't really fit scripture. That, that passage was Galatians 6.10. It says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we prioritize ministry to believers when it comes to donations and giving and that sort of thing. Not that you never do the other thing. You just have a priority. All right, verse 29. He says, but I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Um, I like Paul's attitude towards ministry. He's like, I can already tell you when I get there and I have a chance to teach you the things that God's given me, the things that I know about Jesus, the things that I know about the scriptures, about following him, when I can share that stuff with you, I know there will be such a blessing in it for you. And so he gets out knowing that in his teaching, and this is something I should have confidence in too, in my own teaching, and anybody who shares the truth of God should have this, there is a blessing that goes with the word of God. Like there's just a blessing that goes out with God's holy word as it ministers to people, it builds them up, it makes things clear, it gives them insights into life, it changes the way they live. There's a blessing that comes in the word of God. When I was in the school of ministry, at one point they told us, when you're going to teach, try to be excited about what you're teaching. And, um, and I'm not very good at faking things. Like, I've, that's not really my thing. Um, but some guys do. I mean, they get up, and I've heard guys say, oh, when I get up into the pulpit, I become a whole different person. And I'm just like, why? <laughs> but my thought was, if you're not excited, you just haven't studied the passage enough. Like, study it till you're excited. That would be a good way of knowing when you're ready to teach. Like, study it till it's like, nope, there's, there's gold in them nar hills. You know, like, I know there is value in the things that I'm sharing. And that was the way it was for Paul. Like, he knew there was this beautiful value in the gospel and in the message he brought and knew it would bring a blessing into their lives. He had confidence in it. And so we should have this confidence as well. Um, Verse 30, he says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. This is a really interesting. Sometimes Paul begs people, um, and, and maybe that's to get their attention. Like he's like, No, please, please, like, pray. Oh, we'll pray for you, Paul. Sure. No, I'm begging you. Please pray. But then he talks about how they are to pray, and he gives them a few a few phrases. One is through the Lord Jesus Christ and the other one is through the love of the Spirit and then he asks them to strive together uh, with him in prayers. So through, how do I pray through the Lord Jesus? Um, well, this is what we do. I mean, I usually pray. I pray, you know, in Jesus' name. I say amen. And um, now that's not required. Scripture doesn't tell us you have to pray. You have to say in Jesus' name. I mean, I, I like praying that way, okay? So <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, but there is a sort of function of prayer. The prayer happens through Jesus, as in my access to God, the reason why my prayers can be heard, the reason why God can listen favorably to me is because of Jesus. So I really am praying in Jesus' name, whether I say in Jesus' name or not, or my prayers are basically not making it. You know, the, their, the, the prayer ultimately, and not that God would never hear the prayer of an unsaved person, I think he does actually, but ultimately the access to God and his being in, his, in right standing with him, being in a place where I can really appeal to him with impact and effect is because of Jesus. Jesus says, come to the Father through me. So I, I do pray 
through the Lord Jesus. Then he says, through the love of the Spirit, through the love of the Spirit. I've just, I've really meditated on that and thought about that recently. Like, what does that mean to pray through the love of the Spirit? There's an idea of a togetherness in prayer when you're praying together. He'll talk about that in a second. So there's that like love of the Spirit that we be in a, in a place of peace with each other as we pray. It's difficult to pray with someone when you're irritated with them, when you're frustrated with them. You're not in the love of the Spirit with that person. You really need to pray in the love of the Spirit with them. But there's also an awareness of the love that God has for us as we go to him in prayer. I mean, maybe this sounds childish, but don't you feel the need to know that God loves you as you go to him in prayer? To just know that you're in his love? Lord, I'm praying in the name of Jesus, I have access and I have the love of the Holy Spirit. And so I can go to God. And this changes how I pray, especially if my prayer is about to be a complaint. Lord, I come to you in the name of Jesus and in the love of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have such a bad attitude. I was going to complain about so-and-so. But really. And it's like prayer is the f- prayer and worship are the two attitude adjusters in my life. Just immediate attitude adjustment comes as I come to God in prayer or worship, which is prayer, sung prayer. So through the love of the Spirit, <clears throat> and he says, strive together. Strive together. We're often told not to strive. Don't strive. I think biblically, the actual teaching to get more clarity on it is don't strive according to your power and according to your ability, but absolutely strive in the spirit. Strive according to his power. Like Paul says, I strive according to the power of him who works mightily in me. So I'm not striving based on my ability, but prayer is not a passive partnership. Like, we all pray before each one of our Sunday evening services. We just lift up prayer requests. And I wonder what my posture is as I hear other people praying. Am I passively listening as they pray, or am I striving together with them in prayer? I never say it out loud, but sometimes when we're praying, and we're getting to that point where we say amen, and then somebody chimes in with something they've obviously been thinking about the whole time, I wonder, were they praying with us? You know, like you go, amen. They go like, so I was thinking about the other. <laughs> and I'm just like, were you really with me in that moment of prayer? I would never say it out loud because I'm like, I don't see the benefit of it. <laughs> but, but were you really striving together with me in prayer? Or were you just waiting for me to finish? There's a difference. And that's, I think, why he says strive together in prayer. Right Through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the love of the Holy Spirit, strive together in prayer to God. For me, and he's asking for prayer for himself, there is no spiritual person who says, I'm so spiritual, I don't need prayer. Paul was spiritual enough to know he needed prayer. In, um, in our lives, though, there's, I feel like prayer gets attacked a lot. I've, I've had questions. Maybe you have, have had them too. People ask you questions. Like One question I've, I've had recently was, uh, why do I have to pray if God already knows what he's going to do? Or, is my prayer really making a difference? Is God really listening to my prayer? I mean, I know the Bible says he's listening, you know, but, but I just don't feel it. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, you got the Bible here and you got your feelings here. Pick one <laughs> and go with it. 
So oftentimes our hearts devalue prayer and de-emphasize prayer. What's interesting is the Bible continually emphasizes and re-emphasizes and commands and calls us to prayer. And it talks about not only prayer for the purpose of like some spiritual benefit in your life, it brings you a sense of peace, it brings you joy. It talks about prayer because prayer makes a difference in the real world. And so we should be striving together. So his prayer request specifically, he prays, like I think it's about three different things. He says that I may be delivered from the, from those in Judea who do not believe, and that I, my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. So he's going to be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. Uh, Paul was under constant attack from others, but he, he didn't just think, God's with me, I'm good. He also thought, let's pray. There is a battle going on. There's a real spiritual warfare going on. Let's strive together in prayers with me for me, about me being delivered from these people. Um, sovereignty, the sovereignty of God does not negate prayer. Whatever attack is on your prayer life, whatever excuse you have for thinking prayer is not important, that's just an attack. All the more reason to pray. You know, if you ever feel like prayer is not, not valuable or not important, I just think you should pray about it. Just pray about it. Think about it. Come back later. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Sorry. Bad joke. Verse 32, he says that I may come to you with joy. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. The end of verse 31, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. This is really interesting. Um, What an interesting prayer request. He's like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Please pray that they'll let me minister to them. That's an interesting prayer request. Like, pray that, that my ministry to them will be acceptable to them. Paul was a guy that was under, like, a lot of character assault. A lot of people were, were saying things behind his back. Um, attacking him, demonizing him, maybe spreading things that weren't true about him because they didn't like him. There were these Judaizers that had come from the Jerusalem area. They went out, and then Paul had to deal with these people, and they left a little angry. Then they went back where? To Jerusalem. And so he's like, I just, just pray that when I go there, they'll actually let me minister to them. And I've experienced this, maybe you have too, where all of a sudden you can't minister to people anymore. Like, you used to be able to speak to them and talk to them about the Lord, and now they just, like, the wall has gone up, and they can't hear you anymore. And so I, I think it's just very real. And, and one thing that you can do if that happens is you can pray. Lord, I, I just pray that you'd open the door for me to minister to them again. Open the door that, that I would be able to have that relationship with them. Not to be over them, but to serve them. <clears throat> then he finally says that he may uh, come to them with joy by the will of God. By the will of God. Notice this. He says, one of the things I want you to pray is that I may come to you with joy by the will of God. Or in other words, let your will be done, God. That's part of your prayers. I have heard pastors, not our pastors, but I've heard pastors say that we should not say, thy will be done while we pray. I've heard this several times. And these are always from the signs and wonders side of the the Christian spectrum. Um, And they said, you know, you can pray, God, you know, if you're willing, let them be healed, or thy will be done, Lord. But I've never seen God answer those prayers. I've heard it several times. And if you've been in one of those circles, you heard it too. He says, pray that I may come to you with joy by the will of God. Jesus himself, he prayed in the garden, right? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Of course, the signs and wonders guy would would quickly say, we quickly say, yes, but God didn't deliver Jesus, did he? See, that didn't work. But this is the kind of wackiness that you have to get into to maintain this sort of like, I don't know, fluffy, 
fake version of, of miracles and signs and wonders. I like the real thing, but I'm not interested in sustaining something that ends up being fake. So, um, so yeah, prayer by the will of God. I say, if you want to, if you want to say, Lord, but your will be done, Lord, not mine. I don't see how this in any way, shape or form could be a negative moment in your prayer life. Asking God for his will, submitting yours to his, his purposes and his plan. I think that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And anybody who says otherwise is a dum-dum. <clears throat> and then he says, finally, that he may be refreshed together with them. Now, I've heard a lot of people talk about ministry as ministry is this thing that just totally drains you. But Paul, although I'm sure he was, you know, his energy may have been drained, he must have been tired and that sort of thing, spent for the Lord in that sense. But he says he'd be refreshed with them. That as he ministered to them, he also got refreshed. And I'm like, that's kind of an interesting ministry mentality, isn't it? It's like, I'm, I'm ministering to you, and I'm also refreshed by you at the same time. And, uh, and I think that there's, that kind of ministry is easy ministry. Where it's almost like you just feel like you're just hanging out with them. Yet, they're stronger in the Lord because of it. <laughs> God, God's just doing stuff in their lives, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. And then verse 33, you think he's ending the book, but he's not. Just the chapter. And verse 33, he says, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. Why say such a thing, though? Now the God of peace, but isn't God already with us? And some people are opposed to this. They're like, don't be like singing like songs, like, Lord, be with us today. God's already with you. Don't say that. I'm like, well, yes, he's with me, but still. I still want the God of peace to be with me. And I think it's entirely appropriate to say, Lord, I know you're here. I know you're with us, but we want you with us. We still want the God of peace with us. We still want your, your, your peace, your comfort, your wisdom, the sense of your presence. We want that more. God be here in a special way. Uh, peace and peace. What a beautiful, I like peace. I like peace. I think I might like peace better than like joy, maybe actually. I'm not sure. Peace is nice. Like peace, like when you go home and you're lying in bed and you're just like, right? Like not all the fears and worries and concerns, just peace. So that's, that's one of the things he says here, closing, coming to the end. He's about to do a bunch of greetings. We'll get to next time. But he says, the God of peace be with you. God of peace. Yeah. Let's pray. Father God, we, we ask the same thing. We know you're with us. We know in Christ you are with us. But now we, we strive together in this prayer and we ask this, God, be with us more in your peace in your comfort, in your wisdom, in the goodness of your sovereignty and your plan and your purposes, in trusting your will, in just having your presence filling us with peace. Peace that, that goes beyond understanding. Peace that is um, that just brings us a sense of rest in Christ. Christ who is our Sabbath. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the, the different random things. We pray that as we've learned this stuff today, that whenever we need it, it would be there recalled to our mind for that moment. And we ask that we would just be a people who are balanced and understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.